All right. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Mining Matters, a mine safety podcast presented by Fisher Phillips. My name is Chris Peterson, and with me, as always, is my partner, Arthur Wolfson. Arthur, how are you doing today? It's getting a little chilly, Chris. I think uh, the summer that might have lasted a little longer is over. But I got to say something, Chris, before we kick it off. I, I just got back from the Southeast Mine Safety Conference about a week and a half ago, and I know you were at the Western Mine Safety Conference. Isn't it great to get back to these conferences and see people and have that interaction again that I think we've been missing the last couple of years? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and frankly, I think... Uh... <laughs> I think we went a little overboard in celebrating each other's company again. Nah. I, I had a couple of very late nights and some rough mornings. <laughs> um, but absolutely, right, getting together and talking about mine safety. And, and I think it really puts in perspective, you know, how many folks are involved, you know, in, in mine safety and, you know, putting together programs and the day-to-day mine safety program management. I think, yeah, I think we're all in good hands. So frankly, I think our listeners will find today's episode particularly interesting, right? So for those who have been involved in conferencing or contesting MSHA citations, or frankly, any MSHA enforcement action, right? We have two guests with us. So former Department of Labor attorneys that have exchanged their roles from government attorneys to private sector representing employers and management side. And so they're here today to share us their government perspective perhaps on, um, you know, contests, settlements, and even litigation. Hopefully we can provide some easy steps operators can take to be more effective in these stages when managing and managing enforcement actions. So with us, so we've got Matt Korn. Matt Korn is a partner in our Columbia office, and he represents employers in all areas of employment, labor, and safety. And I think, Matt, and you can tell us a little bit, but Matt, I think you've been focusing on wage and hour issues for the past couple of years. Is that right? Yeah, that's right, Chris. I, I do a bunch of wage and hour litigation, class collective actions, but really my the start to my career and a, a good chunk of my career has been doing mine safety work, both at the Department of Labor and then on the private side. And I also worked in-house at an operational gold mine in South Carolina for about a year and a half and got to see the construction of a processing plant and all that goes into that. So I, I have seen pretty much every aspect of the mining process from contractors and vendors to operators. Wow. Yeah. That's going to be, it's going to be great to be able to, you know, let you kind of share some of those experiences. Also, we've got Patrick Dalen. He's in our Philadelphia office and his practice focuses on employment and workplace safety issues and focuses on employment discrimination, harassment, and whistleblower retaliation. So Patrick, welcome, and thank you for joining us. Did I leave anything out? I think you spent, what, about 12 years in the solicitor's office, either Philadelphia or New York. Is that right? That's right. A little over 12 years with SOL. I split time between the Philadelphia and the New York office. The Philadelphia office had a very heavy MSHA docket because it covers Pennsylvania and West Virginia. New York had a small MSHA docket. There's not, you know, really much coal mining going on, but uh, they do have sand and gravel pits and things like that and some salt mines. So oftentimes when an MSHA case came in the door when I was in New York, I, I got a fair number of them given my experience with the Philadelphia office. Wow. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So like I said, hopefully we'll be able to, uh, you know, get their perspective at, you know, having worked at DOL for a while. Arthur, did you have any questions for yeah. these folks? Yes. Yeah. So, you know, I think it's great to be able to have Matt and Patrick as a resource in our firm. I've called on both of them with questions I've had. And 
And I should say, I'm also a DOL alum. I was not in the solicitor's office. I was with the uh, administrative law judge's office at the very beginning of my career, although that's getting further and further in the rearview mirror, but it still was an important part of my career. I wanted to ask you guys, and Patrick, you, you're the kind of the closest to the government work of us. You know, people who just do uh, MSHA work or OSHA work may not realize, but the solicitor's office handles a lot of different types of cases, not just MSHA and OSHA. And so I guess could tell us a little bit about that, the different types of cases they handle. And then also sort of within that universe, where does MSHA fall in? How much of a priority is MSHA? How much attention does MSHA get? Because in our world, it it's a, gets a lot of attention, but uh, maybe you can shed some light on that from the, from the government side. Yeah, so the solicitor's office, especially out in the regions, all the attorneys generally work on a variety of cases. So there's OSHA cases and MSHA cases for workplace safety, but also lots of wage and hour cases, so minimum wage, overtime type of stuff, uh, ERISA cases, whistleblower retaliation across a, a large number of statutes, as, as well as representing the agency internal labor relations matters. And then, of course, there's like black lung uh, workers' compensation claims as well that attorneys work on. MSHA, you know, it's more important in some regions than others, you know, depending on what the local economy is. So in the Philadelphia office, the Arlington office, the Denver office, for instance, they have regions that have large mining operations. So the MSHA program is very important in those offices. Um, I would say comparatively, I mean, all of the programs are, are, are important for sure. Um, but MSHA sometimes gets some special attention depending on, on you know, what's going on out there in the world. Uh, especially if there's been a significant accident any time in the recent past. Uh, MSHA is also somewhat special. The mining workforce tends to be fairly well organized and they know how to get attention uh, from the DOL and in DC as well. So, you know, that adds into it as well that MSHA could be an area that gets some specific focus within uh, the Department of Labor and the Solicitor's Office. Interesting. That is, that's interesting because, you know, mining and is a, you know, compared to general industry is just a, a, a small percentage, but I think our clients sometimes do feel like they're getting extra attention. And uh, it sounds like, you know, uh, at least in some cases that that is the case. Yeah, and MSHA has some powers too, compared to the other agencies. You know, the statute gives the inspectors the opportunity or, or the power to, to just enter a mine to do an inspection, right. um, which is an extraordinary power. Um, which is special among the other enforcement agencies, uh, you know, and every mine gets regular inspections. Whereas if you think of like OSHA world, an employer can go decades without getting right. an inspection from OSHA. So mm -hmm. uh, it does, you know, have, have some special powers and is given, you know, some special attention within MSHA as compared to the other programs for sure. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I always, explain to folks how extraordinary that warrantless inspection authority is, right? Um, I think it's, I think MSHA is one of two government agencies with that power, the other one being the nuclear regulatory uh, authorities, right? So I think, um, yeah, I think MSHA being able to come and go as they please is, is extraordinary indeed, yeah. So Matt, you had a little bit of a different experience at Department of Labor. Um, and not to you know suggest you weren't a real solicitor, right? But you were 
not in the in the regular solicitor's office, but you were in what they call the backlog project, which I think you know many folks in the EMSHA world are familiar with. Do you want to you know shed some light on that experience? Sure, sure. So I um, graduated law school in 2010 after the Upper Big Branch um, mine disaster, and, and when that when that happened, um, there were I don't know 10,000 plus pending. MSHA cases um, before the Federal Mine Safety and Health Review Commission and Department of Labor, um, in an effort to try to get through some of the backlog, hired about 70 attorneys, I think, nationwide um, to start working through these cases. And I was one of those attorneys. I was in the Arlington office um, and my territory, if you will, was kind of southern West Virginia. So um, primarily underground coal, um, some surface coal. Um, and some other other work that I did. But um, I mean, my first day on the job, my, my boss came in and slapped 200 cases down on my desk and said, here's here's your caseload. Um, good luck to you. I'm down the hall if you need me. Um, and it was, it was kind of trial by fire. Um, but, you know, in, in you know, 15 months or a year and a half that I was there, um, cleared through a, a, a number of those cases, um, you know, and, and for our listeners, Primarily, those were, you know, settlements where the, the government and the mine operator contractors could come to some kind of agreement. Um, but, you know, we also took some to trial. Um, and I think we'll be talking about that a little bit later about what that looks like. But um, got through a number of cases, as did my my peers. I, I think there's still a, a huge number of cases at, you know, the Mine Safety and Health Review Commission. Um, but we did, I think, a pretty good job getting through a good number of them. Yeah, I mean, you know, so Arthur or Patrick anyway was was speaking to, you know, perhaps an enhanced focus on MSHA within DOL. I think that's a great example. I mean, I have never heard of a government agency hiring its own fleet of attorneys, if you will, right, to, to, to handle uh, some significant issues, right? I mean, this wasn't just, you know, a, a dog and pony show where you're just horse trading to get, you know, through a settlement. I mean, you guys were handling some significant issues for a number of years, right? Yep, that's right. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, it was, there was a, obviously a learning curve. Um, I think you'll find that, you know, depending on the experience level, Patrick mentioned, you know, he was called upon to take on a lot of the New York cases because of his experience. And this is such a specialized industry and the issues are so unique. Um, we were fortunate at the time to have a technical advisor in our office who was a former deputy administrator for coal and, and, he was able to, you know, when I had a question about roof bolting, because <laughs> it was something I'd never had experience with, I was able to walk down the hall and say, what is, what is the inspector talking about? You know, the other side's sending me this. What, what are they talking about? Who's right here? Um, and kind of try to learn a little bit about what was going on. Yeah, I know for sure. I mean, I think uh, the technical aspect is lost on a lot of people that are outside of mining, right? But it's, it's specialized indeed. So Patrick, turning to you and, and your experience with um, MSHA cases, um, you know, how did the solicitor's office prioritize the MSHA cases? And, and I guess we're talking about MSHA specifically now, right? And, and I guess what I'm looking at is, you know, sometimes operators will they'll get maybe a relatively low dollar citation. So 104A, non-SNS, low to moderate negligence, um, you know, maybe a couple hundred dollars in penalty. And yet they contest this 
citation as opposed to paying it and moving on, right? Because, you know, perhaps it's a principal issue or, um, you know, perhaps more significantly, there's some operational impact, right? Um, that would go beyond, you know, just a couple of hundred dollars penalty. And so they, they can test this and go through, you know, either a conferencing process or even, you know, take it to litigation. But they are sensitive, you know, sort of a, I don't know, cost benefit analysis, I guess you could call it. Um, does the solicitor's office have a similar type of, of vetting process in terms of cases? I guess we'd be interested to know, you know, what cases the solicitor's office decides to push and why they push them, you know, versus, uh, you know, perhaps trying to, to settle out some other issues. Yeah, so I think the government is unique in that it, unlike a, a private litigant, say like a mine operator, the government doesn't have to so much uh, keep track of dollars and cents, you know, all of their attorneys are on salary. Uh, so they don't think about litigation in the same way where they're looking at, say, for instance, attorney's bills coming in every, every month or so. They need to weigh the costs and benefits. Uh, that being said, you know, the government still does have to weigh a few things. Um, there's lots of MSHIP cases coming in the door. There's lots of, in the solicitor's office, OSHA cases, you know, wage and hour cases and so forth coming in the door every month as well. Um, and all of those cases are competing for a finite pool of attorney resources in the solicitor's office. Um, so at the end of the day, even though, you know, the solicitor's office isn't paying attorney's bills, they do, they all have so many attorney hours that they can put to use. So they have to decide where to direct those resources. In MSHA land, you know, obviously fatalities are going to get very close attention. Um, any injuries, you know, the more significant the injury, it's going to get more attention. Operators who maybe have a history of violations will get more attention. So even perhaps smaller citations, uh, you know, they could get more attention with one, operation, one operator versus another operator, depending on what their, either their violation history has been or history in interacting with MSHA and interacting with the solicitor's office. Um, so reputation can be important, kind of historical reputation of, of how things have uh, occurred in the past and what that, what that relationship has been like could, could affect that determination. Um, and I think also, you know, in the particular inspection at issue that led to the citations, did anything happen? Um, was it contentious? Is there any reason for the investigator to claim that the operator wasn't providing information or was trying to hinder the investigation. Uh, those types of allegations up the chain can get some attention. So even for what might be on the facts of more garden variety MSHA case, if there's allegations of, of interference or anything like that, it might garner more attention. And then ultimately they, you know, they need to take that in, into consideration when you know, looking at similar considerations for all the other program areas. In one particular month, your case might get attention because maybe there aren't as many cases coming in in other programs. In another particular month, if there's a lot of work coming in in the other programs, that could affect how much attention your case gets as well. But that's kind of a, a guessing game, you know, from your end. You, you can never quite know those particular facts. Oh, for sure <laughs> not. Yeah. I've never tried to, <laughs> to figure that end out, right, in terms of you know, I, obviously you notice, you know, oh, it seems like Solicitor's really bearing down on this one, uh, you know, versus some other case perhaps, right? But yeah, I've never really attempted to figure out why that might be on any, on any given day. 
Um, so Matt, your experience might be a little bit different, right? I mean, you're, you're wading through, you know, or at least had waded through hundreds, if not thousands of citations. How did you all go through the vetting process in terms of, you know, perhaps deciding which ones to go to hearing on, you know, what was litigation worthy versus, you know, perhaps some citations that could be settled out with, you know, not as much time. Yeah, sure. I think I think some of those same things that Patrick said, you know, when you get a 104D citation um, or facts that are particularly egregious, um, that's something that I think, you know, I'm just going to take more interest in and, and want to push further, um, assuming the facts are there. And I, and I think that's a, that's the important point is, um, you know, are there facts that support the citation? Are there are there things that um, you know, at a hearing would be persuasive to a, to a judge, or, you know, is, is the contest valid? And I know we'll get into that in a little bit here in, in terms of what, what does that look like? But, um, you know, I, I think, you know, when you're working for the government, there's limited resources, can't possibly take every single case to hearing. You've got to make choices. And, you know, obviously, um, you know, you want to pick the cases that have the best chance of success if you're going to if you're going to go to a hearing. You know, I just wanted to uh, kind of come back to something Patrick said about, um, you know, that some of the consideration is sort of the past past relationship with with MSHA or past past dealings with the solicitor's office or, or that type of thing, you know, and um, I think something we recognize is that, you know, the mining universe is a small universe. And, uh, and it's interesting that that seems to, have been, seems to be recognized in the solicitor's office as well. So Patrick, can you maybe sh shed a little light on, our, our, on the subject for our audience? Um, you know, given that it's a small universe, we're gonna have like sort of the same inspectors, the same operators, the same attorneys on each side, the same judges, um, you know, how does one uh, best position themselves, build credibility, in that small universe. And then by contrast, you don't have to name any names. I don't want, I'm not asking that, but uh, what are some ways that uh, things can go sideways, some things that people will want to avoid? Yeah, you know, just generally speaking, um, for an operator to have a reputation of being a safer operator, caring about safety, responding to issues that have been raised in past inspections, and remedying them, you know, in a timely fashion. That's a, a reputation that benefits the operator, both with MSHA and, and the solicitor's office. Um, if for whatever reason, you know, maybe there, depending on what could have occurred in the past, if there's a sense within MSHA uh, or the solicitor's office that, you know, this is a company that hasn't been responsive in, in the past to issues that we've raised or in prior litigations, we felt like they weren't you know, responsive or forthcoming in discovery, uh, you know, whether that's a warranted reputation or not, um, that could hinder a company in trying to resolve a case. So uh, the attorney sitting there handling the case might be thinking, you know, I hear what the company's saying, they have their side of the story, um, but, you know, I may not fully trust it um, if, if we have a sense that this company has perhaps withheld information in the past or not been fully forthcoming in the past. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas in comparison, if, if a company has a you know, good reputation, they might be more willing to 
to trust in settlement negotiations, you know, the, 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 the story that the company's putting forth um, in order to, to get to a mutual resolution. That's interesting. Interesting insight. Yeah, just add to that. Um, I, you know, it is a small world, Arthur, you're right. And, you know, in the solicitor's office, I, f I feel like, you know, we have repeat interactions with the same attorneys, whether it's, you know, on behalf of the same mine operator or different mine operators. Um, and I, I think the, the most important thing for me when I was in the solicitor's office is credibility. Do I trust what the person on the other side is telling me um, or do I think they're stretching? And, you know, when you when you trust the people you're working with, whether, you know, you're on one side or the other, you got to trust that the other side is telling you the truth is, you know, giving you accurate facts is not stretching the truth. Um, and, and it's a small world. And, you know, the people within the solicitor's office talk to each other, too. So, you know, I was in the same office as other people and we would walk down the hall and say, hey, I've got this case with so and so. Have you had a case with that person? What do you know about them? If it was my first case and, and you're going to get the feedback. So, you know, I think it's I think it's important, you know, when you're picking which cases or which citations to um, contest. Um, Chris mentioned earlier, there's a lot of reasons why contesting a citation, even if it's, you know, a couple hundred dollars can make sense. Um, but you also got to make sure there's a valid reason or, you know, facts underlying the contest. We're not just contesting every citation we get, um, you know, picking, picking the right ones and having a legitimate basis to contest the citation can, can give you um, some more credibility. You know, I'll, I'll just add, Matt, and, you know, putting on my own government service hat when I was clerking for an administrative law judge, nothing angered the judge I clerked for more than when we did get a case where it felt like one side or the other was just throwing everything at the wall and hoping something will stick. Um, he wanted to know, why are you bringing this case to court? What are your facts? What do you want out of it? And, you know, so I always try to, I've kept that in mind throughout my whole legal career. When I bring a case, I try my best to say, you know, this should be non-SNS because of this. This should be lower negligence because of this. And I, I, I try to talk to my clients about that, too. What are we bringing this case for? And uh, if we don't have the case, then I, I don't I, I think to your point, you're actually hurting yourself. You may even win a case, maybe maybe you get lucky or something. But in the long run, you may be hurting yourself by bringing a case that doesn't need to be brought. And then when you do have one that needs to be brought, and you do have the facts for it. You want to be in the best position possible when that case comes along. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good point, Arthur and Patrick and, and, and Matt have, I think really highlighted the importance of, you know, building credibility throughout this whole process. And then as you, as you mentioned, Arthur, building credibility with the judge, right? I think, mm -hmm. you know, for years, that's kind of how we've all approached, um, at least our offices anyway, have approached, um, you know, going to hearing, right? I mean, that's, it's sort of, you know, it's a, yeah, it's a time intensive, expensive process and you want to, you know, make sure that you're using that appropriately, right? And, um, I think Matt and Patrick, though, you, you've both mentioned in terms of settlement, right? Bringing, bringing facts to the table. Um, you know, and I think we've you've mentioned a little bit about, you know, credibility and your relationship with the agency and, and even with the solicitors, but you know, what sort of, what role do, do facts 
play in the settlement. And I guess, I guess I'm tying that into, you know, how operators can best position themselves, right, to get some sort of settlement. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, I, I would say facts are the most important thing, the facts and, and the evidence to support the facts, right? Um, at the end of the day, that's that's what's going to drive the determination for the, the attorneys in the solicitor's office. Um, you also have to keep in mind, you know, narratives can move quickly. So you want to, you know, if you're an operator, get the, get the facts together as, as quickly as possible and, and start presenting your story as soon as you can, you know, you have to, you have to take your time and, and do your diligence and, and, and learn the facts first. I, I agree with Arthur. You don't want to just, just start throwing things at the wall because it could hurt your credibility. Uh, but once you get your ducks in a row, you want to, you know, present the story and all the facts that you have on the side of the government, they never have a full picture of what's going on. It's, it's, it's impossible to, to have a 100% picture of what's going on. Um, they do have some extraordinary resources. You know, an investigator comes into the mine and, 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 and does an investigation, which is compared to say a normal plaintiff in a private litigation, that's, a, that's an extraordinary power, right? So they start off with being able to come into the property and, and do, do an inspection and, and develop some facts. And that creates a narrative that runs up the chain internal deal well. But they, you know, almost never have all the facts. So there is a role for the operator to come in and fill out the picture and present additional information and correct that narrative, you know, hopefully as soon as possible. And that does shape the playing field, so to speak, with, you know, potentially changing the narrative internal and deal well, making them think again about this case and, and potentially altering their perspective of the case and what they're looking to get out of it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's so important. I mean, it seems relatively basic, uh, <laughs> you know, saying, oh, let's engage in settlement and then, you know, yeah, actually have some facts, some justification for what you, uh, what you're asking for. I, years ago, I was talking to a young associate who had started in this area and I told him that uh, I thought for any settlement discussion, there was almost two phases. One, where you negotiate the facts first and then you're negotiating, once you have the facts established, then you're negotiating terms of settlement. And, you know, I don't know that you're necessarily negotiating facts, right? But certainly, as Patrick, you've, you've mentioned, right, the government has their version and the operator can come in and, you know, either supplement or, um, you know, offer, you know, alternative facts, if we want to use that phrase, right? <laughs> um, but yeah, but basically both sides working together to right, figure out, okay, what has happened here? What, you know, what systems did we have in place? What was the site of condition even, right? I mean, so I think those initial discussions were, were huge. Now, Matt, in the backlog project, you were obviously presented with some facts, right, to mitigate certain, um, you know, citations. What role did you have and how did the, your technical advisor play a role in, uh, you know, kind of negotiating those facts, if you will? Yeah, sure. I, you know, it was, it was easy for me because I could walk down the hall and talk with them about, you know, what's going on in this case. They've provided me X, Y, and Z. Does this, does this make sense to you? What follow-up questions do you have for the operator? So I could go back and say, you know, you've, you've said this, but what about this? Um, you know, and so it, it made it a little bit easier. It is just going back a minute, you know, in terms of trying to get cases resolved, I always, um, when I have been representing operators and contractors, I, th I think the best time to try to settle a case 
is at the closing conference. If you can get the inspector to not issue an SNS, to do non-SNS, or to, to do a 104A instead of a D at the closing conference, um, I think it can make a world of difference. It, it can be a lot easier um, and cheaper, <laughs> to be honest. Having to go through it, Chris and Chris and Arthur are shaking their heads at me. Please don't tell our. our <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, I think we we say that in some of our trainings. You know. Yeah, no, that. it's it's good advice. I mean, and yeah. it, you got to be careful. You you do have to be careful, especially if you don't if you're not you know already consulting with an attorney. You got to be careful about what you say and how you say it because it can get you into get get you into more trouble. Um, because anything that a manager says during one of those is going to be an admission for the company. So. You do have to be careful, but, you know, talking to the inspector on the ground is going to be your best bet. After that, you know, once you've contested to the citation, sometimes getting to the solicitor's office can give some distance and some, you know, insight into the matter too. So um, if you're not, not able to just, you know, work it out with the, you know, the local office, um, having the solicitor's office participate is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, and, you know, again, I think it's, it's presenting you know, not just saying we're just contesting to contest, have some basis, spell it out, um, give some actual evidence, something that's not already in the file, um, you know, that the inspector has. One of the things I commonly did was submit a FOIA request to get a copy of the inspection file so I could go through it um, and find out what's not in the file. What can I tell the solicitor's office that they don't already know about this situation so that we can try to um, try to get this case resolved if we can? Because, you know, from an operator's perspective, it's, you know, going to a hearing um, might be the thing to do on some of these if, if you can't resolve them. But, you know, we're at Fisher Phillips, we're business practical, business focused attorneys who want to solve the business problem as efficiently as possible. And oftentimes that means resolving and settling the case early um, if we can, if, if we can achieve the outcome that the client's looking for, that's what we want to try to do. Matt, that that I think is a nice segue. I think to our, our our one of our last topics here, which is litigation. You mentioned sometimes cases go to hearing. We, despite our best efforts, um, we're unable to settle. And you know, I know from my perspective, you know, why might a, a mine operator take a, a case to hearing? Well, there could be a number of reasons, right? It could be, it could be the classification. It could be the penalty amount, it could be the principle that Chris was talking about, it could be something operational. Every case is different, right? So what we're, what we're interested in is from the solicitor side, we touched on this, on this a little bit earlier, but if there's anything you want to add, number one, how does the solicitor's office decide which cases to push to trial? Because you mentioned there are limited resources. Num number two, how does the government go about building a case for trial? Um, be really interesting to hear that perspective. So, Patrick, why don't we start with you uh, on, on those two those two points? Yeah, you know, I think on the issue of which cases to bring to trial, it's along the lines of what I discussed earlier. It depends on how important the case is, kind of with the other added factor, which you can never really know on the defense side, is what resources does the office have available at the time. So I've tried a, a few MSHA cases, one of them was very small, but I just happened to be available. And so I had to drive to West Virginia to, to try it. Yeah. You know, the company probably thought there's no way to try in this case, yeah. um, but it happened. So that, you know, that, that element is a guessing game. 
Mm -hmm. um, how they put their case together, again, it starts with the inspection and the inspector, um, what the inspector observes, who they interview, what those people say, um, and potentially minor witnesses who they're going to call at trial, which, you know, as the operator, you're, you're not going to know who that is until very late in the game. Um, two days, two days before. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, it's, it's a process that process that's very reliant on to begin with the inspector's testimony of what the inspector saw and heard. Um, you know, to the extent that they rely on statements of minors, you know, sometimes they have they have a case now down very good. And I, I've seen those and uh, some inspectors are, are really good at doing that. Um, sometimes, you know, they rely on witnesses who maybe don't actually have personal knowledge of all the facts or, um, you know, weren't in position to see, you know, necessarily everything that needed to be seen, where sometimes you have a particularly hyperbolic minor or two that the case is based off of. And, um, you know, if you're, if you're an operator, that creates some opportunity to try to set the record straight. You know, the attorney on the other side is always trying to figure out, are these witnesses that I can rely upon? And if you can present evidence in advance of the hearing that brings into question perhaps what maybe some minors said, uh, that could help potentially at least avoid a trial. Um, but as far as preparing to go to trial, the, the key evidence is, you know, what the inspector saw and heard, what minor witnesses are going to say, and then what they collect in discovery from you, the operator, in advance of the hearing. So they'll request your uh, daily inspection reports and manuals and, and things of that nature. And sometimes you can find some good evidence in there if you're on the government side. Uh, that, that helps your case. Mm -hmm. Matt, your, uh, your take on those? and how's that? You tried a lot of cases, I know, because in those backlog days, I tried a lot on the other side. I was going to trial about once a month, so you were probably going to trial even more than that. Um, how, how did you go about building a case uh, on, behalf of the, on behalf of the solicitor's office uh, when you were representing Amtrak? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a few a few factors. You know, you got to have an inspector, um, it, just like any organization. Um, some employees are better than others, right? So you, you got to have an inspector that's going to testify well on the stand, um, and is going to be credible for the for the administrative law judge. Um, so that's one of the things I would evaluate: is who's my inspector? How are they going to do? Of course, you know, it's it, anybody on the that's listening that is has been through a hearing knows this, but if you haven't, it's not like law and order um, on TV. Every, you know, no questions are asked that people don't already know the answers to. We do depositions in advance. Um, we know all the answers. There's really no surprises at trial, except for the minor witnesses that you, you mentioned, but there's really no surprises at trial. We know what the inspector is going to say. We generally know what the company is going to say. Um, one of the, you know, one of the other things that I would consider is who the judge is, because Anyone that's been around this world for a little while knows that there are some judges that are, um, we'll just say, better at being impartial than others, um, and that goes and that goes both ways. Uh -huh. So there's some, you know, some you get an ALJ draw, and some of the judges are more MSHA friendly, and some are more operator friendly, um, just like the commission. I mean, the commission's more political and appointed, but the judges have. So once you once you get to know the judges a bit, that that plays a role in how far you're going to push a case. Um, so there's, there's, there's just a ton of factors that have to go into the analysis on both sides. Um, and that's what, you know, pushes parties to, 
you know, settle sometimes is that, you know, there's factors that go both ways. I've been on calls with judges where the judges, you know, don't tell me they're going to rule a certain way, but strongly indicate they're going to rule a certain way. And at that point, you know, I would call my client at the time, the government now operators and contractors and say, look, you know, if we go to trial, this judge is not seeming like he's going to be real favorable to us. Um, it's time to time to figure out what we're going to do here. So, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it runs the gamut, but I think making sure, you know, the ducks are in a row, um, so to speak, I've had to call experts to trial to talk about highly technical issues. One of the advantages of MSHA as opposed to other types of administrative law is that we do have ALJs who are used to hearing these cases, who have a pretty good idea of a lot of the technical aspects that go on, uh, but some of them are newer and some of them need more education. Uh, I, when I was in the solicitor's office, I would tell the inspector, I need you to explain it to me like I'm a kindergartner. Um, that's about the level that I need it, one, because I need to understand it, and two, because I need to explain it to the judge. Um, and I say the same thing on uh, you know, this side, that you know, if, if, if my client can't tell me in plain English and in plain terms what, what we're doing, um, it's, it's going to make my job more difficult um, in explaining it to the judge. So it has to be, a, you have to have a compelling story at a very simple level. If I could add one thing, Matt raised an important issue about experts. Uh, MSHA has some very good people in its tech support unit. Um, so the other agencies oftentimes have to go outside and hire experts, but MSHA has a whole bench inside in, in its tech support unit. I was always impressed with their level of knowledge and expertise. I even, in OSHA cases, I borrowed MSHA tech support people as expert witnesses. Uh, so. If, it's, if you have a case, for instance, with like a ventilation issue or a complicated machinery issue, you should be thinking potential experts. I've seen a number of cases where, um, you know, companies just weren't prepared with a person who could, you know, match, I would say, the, the expertise or knowledge of the people who EMSHA who brings in from tech support. And sometimes it may just be because that person, you know, EMSHA might just be right. Um, but I think, you know, I've seen other times where maybe um, companies could have been better prepared, you know, with a person to to at least address or at least answer some of the questions raised by the MSHA technical support expert witnesses because they 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 are very good um, and they have them ready. They don't have to spend any extra money to bring them into a case. So you should always be prepared for them to to get involved if there's any technical issue as an expert witness. Wow, yeah, that's that's a great information, and I think uh, you know important for operators to understand, right? They're basically two sides to the same coin, right? So you know, competing interests, and you know, I guess that's why we all have jobs, right? We're we're trying to find that middle ground if there is any, right, with with government agencies. So I guess wrapping up, um, is there anything that both of you? We can start with Matt this time. Um, what have you learned with your experience at DOL um, that you've carried over, right? You know, because you both have, have uh, you know, crossed the line, if you will, right, to employer management side. What, what experience did you have in DOL that kind of informs your approach to private practice? Sure, I, Chris, I think it's a lot of the things we talked about. I, one of my favorite things to be able to do is the first time I pick up the phone and talk to a new solicitor is just say, you know, I've been in your shoes. I've, I've, I've done your job. Um, that doesn't garner any special 
favor, of course, um, and I'm not trying to do that, but I do think, you know, in terms of building rapport and credibility, um, it helps that I've seen it from both sides. Um, so I think that's one, um, I, you know, now I'm 10 years plus out from it at this point. So I'm, I meet new solicitors all the time that I haven't worked with before. Um, I think in terms of just, um, again, knowing what, you know, what is it that helps MSHA to see something different? And I think it's, I think that step I talked about earlier, doing a FOIA request, seeing what the inspector's notes say. Some inspectors take prolific notes, others barely write anything down, um, as we've all seen. And so, you know, but seeing what the inspector said or didn't say, and then trying to figure out where there's holes or where there's additional information that maybe the inspector didn't didn't get. Um, I, I think that's that's really where I found the most success in terms of trying to represent my clients. Um, and it can be it can be a frustrating process um, going going through the MSHA contest process for for the for the litigants as well as the attorneys that are doing the litigation. Um, but you know I think keeping that professionalism that credibility is is really crucial you know, for the client I'm representing, but for all the other clients that, you know, we represent as a firm, um, you know, you want, you want your counsel to have a good reputation um, when they're, when they're bringing your case. So that was super, super important to me. Um, and then, you know, again, I mentioned earlier, I've worked in-house as a lawyer at a, at a gold mine. And I think um, that experience also has kind of informed how I represent operators and contractors and, and mine safety cases is just, kind of seeing it on the ground, um, learning, you know, what happens at the mine level. Um, you know, I, I, what I've always loved about my workplace safety practices, I get to go, I got to go out and tour a jaw crusher. And, and you know, that's not something that any other attorney in my office has ever done. Um, but it's, it's something cool about what I get to do, being there at the mine and seeing it every day, seeing how the operations work um, and being able to kind of um, contextualize the citations because sometimes you get a citation and it's just completely out of context and that's part of our job is to help put it more into the broader context of what's going on at the mine you know thinking of things to ask the operator like you know do you have bigger policies in place do you have procedures in place um, that would have prevented this issue um, not just looking at the issue from a technical perspective but kind of big picture seeing it um, and trying to figure out how we can um, chip away at different parts of the citation or the citations improperly as you try to get it vacated. Mm. Well, Patrick, what are your what are your thoughts? I agree with everything that Matt just said. I would add, you know, having worked there gives you some perspective on, you know, what would be persuasive arguments and persuasive evidence if you're trying to negotiate a resolution with the solicitor's office, but also, you know, what would be persuasive if you're going to hearing before a judge, um, as well as kind of reading the tea leaves or getting a feel for if you're in discussions with the solicitor's office or even with, with the MSHA office um, about what, you know, what's important here to the government versus what might not be, um, what are the things they take into account, um, that type of thing that would be, you know, I think good for an operator to know to be both efficient in, in addressing the issue and putting together the facts that are most important to the office um, to try to, to, to try to resolve the matter as we discussed early, earlier as uh, cost effectively as possible. 
So having a sense of what they view as important and persuasive, I think is, is an important perspective. Yeah, no, I think that it's just good to have that perspective, right? And I, I think you both bring a lot of value to your clients, having had that government experience, that DOL experience, and you know, having been on the other side. Yeah, you, I think you have an understanding of what's persuasive and you know how to go about doing things. So, Arthur, any any final thoughts on your end, my friend? Yeah, you know, Chris, I I just I I, I hope our listeners. Uh, um, found this valuable. I know I did. I, I think that a lot of the same considerations, there were some differences, I think Patrick especially highlighted, but there's a lot of the same considerations that we take into account when we're preparing for a case, when we're evaluating a case settlement that the, the, the government side is as well. And it's really about putting your best foot forward. And to, to reiterate what Patrick said, as soon as possible, I think that's critical, you know. And I, I I'm seeing the judges in the in the uh, pre-hearing orders are requiring things a lot quicker. So I really think it uh, underscores the point. We've made this on other episodes, but underscores the point: having your ducks in a row as soon as possible will help get you the best result you can. So. Really enjoyed having you guys on today, Matt and Patrick. Both I enjoy working with both of you. I get the pleasure of uh, calling you my colleagues, and uh, and um, think you guys are a valuable asset to to the firm, and, and as is your experience. So great having you on, and maybe we'll do this again sometime. And, and just before we sign up here, just thanks to Chris and Arthur, both of you for. Um, doing this podcast. I, I know that our clients appreciate it. And, um, you know, I remember when you all joined our firm um, for a while, I was a one man show at Fisher Phillips. <laughs> too, and I was so excited for you guys and your team to join our firm. And we're so well positioned now with, you know, people in, in, in Pennsylvania and Colorado and elsewhere that do this stuff day in, day out. Um, you guys are awesome. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad you're here at the firm and helping our clients out and appreciate you all inviting us on to talk with your listeners today. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate that. Thank you, Chris. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was, you know, we enjoy doing these things and I think Arthur had mentioned, this was our one year anniversary of the podcast. Yes, it was. was. Yeah. This is a, this is a good episode to celebrate (laughs) that. Yeah, we'll keep it going. So stay tuned for next month. We'll come up with another exciting topic. So thank you very much, everybody, and stay safe. Bye, everyone. This podcast provides an overview of a specific developing situation. It is not intended to be and should not be construed as legal advice for any particular fact situation.